0: I think there's almost an irony in the way that Trump, by raising the profile of the issue, is paving the way for its ultimate demise. To me, his execution spree, rather than a revival of the death penalty, was actually
1: more of a, a sign of its erosion. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Death is different. That's one of the themes of Maurice Shama's excellent new book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. But if death is different, the death penalty is also squarely part of the American legal system. Shama grounds his discussion of the death penalty in the development of the justice system as a whole, and in American history, particularly, as you'll hear, the history of Texas, and he grounds his narrative in the perspectives of a range of people affected by the trauma of the death penalty. Lawyers, judges, abolitionists, and, above all, people on death row. The book is hopeful in the sense that Shema is convinced the death penalty is fading, and he thinks it's unlikely we'll see a resurgence. This in spite of the really stomach-turning execution spree the federal government engaged in during the final period of the Trump presidency. 13 executions in six months in the midst of a pandemic. This after 17 years without a single federal execution. The last one under Trump taking place just five days before President Biden's inauguration. Before we get going, I want to say there are some pretty disturbing descriptions of violence in this conversation, especially near the beginning. So please take care of listening. Maurice Chaumont is a journalist at the Marshall Project He's conducting his book tour from his home in Austin, Texas, and that's where I reached him. And I started by asking him about the executions under Trump and where they fit in the larger trajectory of the American death penalty.
0: You know, there was an irony in releasing a book that has the title The Fall of the Death Penalty in it at a time when it seemed like the death penalty was rearing up, and I at, you know, times felt ambivalent, but then realized, no, the death penalty is still on the decline. Even with those Trump executions, the number of executions every year is year by year ticking down. And even more than that, the Trump executions galvanized opposition to the death penalty in a way that I had not seen in many years. You know, in the book, I'm mostly covering an era of the 1980s, 90s, early 2000s, when the death penalty was a culture war issue, That really divided conservatives from liberals and was at the forefront of the national political conversation it was something that was on larry king live and um cnn you know almost every night and 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 a real a real litmus test for every political candidate that's right uh there was a, a politician who told me that whenever he would meet just a random citizen and they wouldn't know what to say to him they would ask him do you support the death penalty over the course of the mid to late 2000s, getting up to the present, the death penalty was declining in popularity, but it was also declining in relevance. And people, I think, were quietly growing more and more ambivalent about it. And then when Trump announced all these executions, you saw the defense lawyers in those cases managed to get into the media and into the public sphere, sort of arguments for why those executions were unjust. And those arguments didn't ultimately work. All of these people were executed, but we now have a bill in Congress to abolish the federal death penalty. Uh, We have much more awareness than I think even a year ago about the kind of traumas, mental illnesses, and other struggles that people on death row have faced that maybe um, mitigate the, the sense that they should be executed. And I think there's almost an irony in the way that Trump, by raising the profile of the issue is paving the way for its ultimate demise, it might take a while to actually go away. But to me, his execution spree, rather than a
1: revival of the death penalty was actually more of a, a sign of its erosion. Is there anything that we can say, like sort of in general about the backgrounds of the people who, who were executed in this final round of ex- executions, and maybe something that in a way sheds light on the larger question of the backgrounds of people who end up on death row? when you know these executions were announced
0: often attorney general barr would group them by theme you know people who had murdered children people who had murdered women and there was a real emphasis in the press releases that the ag was putting out and the statements of prosecutors around the heinousness of the crimes and federal death row is, you know, really pretty full of people who who did things that when you first hear about them they kind of make your stomach turn. I mean, murders of, you know, toddlers, young children, kidnappings of women, taking them across state lines. Lisa Montgomery killed a pregnant woman and made off with the unborn fetus who then survived. I mean, just harrowing, awful stories. But when defense lawyers managed to get sort of their version of the story out to the public, in almost all of these cases, you had some what would be called a mitigating factor. Lisa Montgomery, the woman who who killed the the pregnant victim, had an incredibly severe mental illness and a childhood filled with trauma. Her family members allowed her to be raped. Um, her mother even, you know, had a special room where repairmen uh, would would rape Lisa Montgomery as a young child as payment for their services to the house. Um, just these awful things that are as stomach churning as the crime description, right? You know, when you look at case after case of the death penalty across the United States, there isn't mental illness and intellectual disability and childhood trauma in literally every case, but it's almost every case. And sometimes it's not, it's just a matter of it not being found out about yet that the original defense lawyers at the trial maybe did an inadequate job, didn't really interview the family members of this person very at all or very well. And the truth sort of didn't come out. And then closer to the execution, a new team of defense lawyers goes and does all these interviews and manages to create a portrait that leads not everybody, but but many Americans, I think, to question whether this person really deserves to be executed.
1: So a a big theme of the book, I think, is on the symbolic power of the death penalty and the role that it plays within the larger criminal justice system, and again, that's a symbolic power that you think is waning. But first, what 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 is that symbolism of of the death penalty? So, the death
0: penalty is a symbolic. Uh, I call it a kind of pinnacle of our country's turn towards a more punitive criminal justice system. In the 1980s and 90s, crime was on the rise across the country, especially in big cities and the death penalty became a symbol of uh, the idea that we were responding to crime harshly and punitively and that this would deter people from committing crimes. Scholars, criminologists failed to definitively prove that, but it did satiate the public in terms of giving them a sense that their elected officials were responding to these high crime rates in a robust way.
1: And I would think a notion of retribution, right?
0: That's right. So part of it was there was this anger at criminals, this kind of righteous indignation at the idea that these criminals were running around taking advantage of us as a free society. And the death penalty, particularly in the South, and as I write in the book, very particularly in Texas, became the symbol for fighting back. The death penalty at the same time was, even at its peak, used in a vanishingly small percentage of cases. But a point I often try to make is that having the death penalty as part of the larger criminal justice system, I think paves the way for what would otherwise seem to be very punitive sentences to seem kind of lenient by comparison. So if the death penalty exists in America, a life without parole sentence seems like the less harsh alternative. You know, one story I tell in the book is that as the death penalty has gone away, it's been replaced with life without parole. Many states now have, almost all states have life without parole sentences, and more people are sentenced to life without parole than were ever sentenced to death. You know, that is starting to replace the death penalty symbolically as the most punitive option, which which suggests to me that we haven't really turned away from this retributive mindset.
1: And which is hard to present as some kind of victory. I mean, if your interest isn't getting rid of the death penalty, replacing it with life without parole is ambivalent, to say the least, I would think. It is
0: ambivalent. Uh, There are some prisoners, there's a prisoner, particularly in California, who started something called the Other Death Penalty Project, and it was an effort to educate people on the idea that a life without parole sentence is in some ways worse than the death penalty. And the argument for him there is, you know, when you don't have any chance of parole, you're going to die in prison but more to the point you're not entitled to a lawyer in the same way if you're there for life without parole you know there have been a lot of people who've been exonerated from death row because they were innocent or because the courts uh decided that there were such so many flaws in their original trial that they their constitutional rights were violated and they don't deserve to be on death row and that only happens because these death row prisoners have lawyers and in many cases really good lawyers but when you're you know, sitting with a life sentence without possibility of parole, you don't have death hanging over you in quite the same way. And so you're not entitled to a lawyer. And so these problems with your case never come out, but they might be just as
1: severe. I mean, the structure of the book is a kind of the rise and then fall of the death penalty. And it seems to me that what you're arguing is that the death penalty tracks, not always in lockstep, but kind of tracks the larger evolution of the criminal justice system and the the conversation around it. And so the heyday of the death penalty, if we want to call it that, is, you know, the sort of tough on crime, people are irredeemable sort of focus, like in, in the 80s, I think you're saying, and that now that there's more focus on rehabilitation, we hope, and that the system has become too punitive, the death penalty. The world has changed around the death penalty. Absolutely. And I think that within that larger story, within that
0: attempt to show how the death penalty and the Texas death penalty in particular mirror the larger criminal justice system, there's a lot of sort of smaller stories of how they track and influence one another that I try to tell. I talk about the rise of the victim's rights movement, this idea that You know the family members of murder victims, or the you know surviving victims of of rape or robbery themselves can testify in court and get to know the prosecutors, and and the prosecutors come to see themselves as delivering justice for the victim rather than for the state, which had sort of previously been the way it was understood. And that's not just a story of the death penalty. I think that's a an aspect of the larger turn towards a more punitive criminal justice system. That part of why we embraced retribution was because the victims were a bigger part of the picture and they uh, were asking for retribution and we as a society were giving it to them. Similarly, death row on Texas itself became more punitive. So in the eighties and nineties, even though the culture was turning towards these men are irredeemable monsters, the men on death row were able to work. A lot of them worked in a garment factory they were able to recreate outside in the Texas prison. There are these very evocative pictures of them playing volleyball and dominoes and chess in day rooms, right? And spending, spending large amounts of time with one another. And then in about the year 2000, there's an escape attempt from death row. And the response is to move death row to virtually entirely solitary confinement and now you know, 20 years later, all of the men on death row are in their cells for, you know, 22 to 24 hours a day. They can't really interact with each other. There's no human touch or connection.
1: Other than somebody having the cuffs put on them, right? That's right. Point out. That
0: detail really stuck with yeah. me, this idea that the only physical touch they're getting is the, is the officer putting the cuffs on them. And I bring up in the book that that's not just traumatic and difficult for the men work um, living there. It's also not great for the people working there. You know, the Men who are guards at death row, they themselves describe a kind of trauma of watching these men kind of waste away. And if there's any, you know, possibility that they're gonna have psychosis, you know, the solitary confinement exacerbates that that tendency. And so you just have a lot of mental illness on death row, a lot of, you know, violence just sort of emerges from these really harsh conditions. And that turn from freedom to solitary confinement. I'm just talking about Texas death row, but I try to explain how that tracks with the larger prison system across the country. Every state had its own, you know, escape attempt or riot or enterprising legislator who said these guys have too many perks, let's shut them into solitary confinement and that became
1: the way of housing prisoners across the country. A, a good portion of the book is is taken up with talking about Texas, where you live and work. I think someone in the book, I can't remember if it's you, says that, you know, as America is to the rest of the world when it comes to the death penalty, Texas is to the rest of America. Texas is really the epicenter of the death penalty within the United States. We've talked about symbolism, but there's a very particular sort of symbolism and, and mythos of uh, the death penalty in Texas, so could you talk a bit about what the support or even the the reverence for the death penalty that I think used to exist in Texas, what that was grounded in? So Texas
0: has a cultural mythology that is somewhat unique in the United States. Many old Western movies are set here, even if they were filmed in Arizona. But when you think of old John Wayne movies, a lot of the time you're thinking about Texas. And what happens in a lot of these movies is people are lynched, but it's cowboys who stole some cattle. And the idea is we live on the frontier. We don't have the time or the resources to bring this man to a full trial in town. The judge is on a circuit and he's hundreds of miles away from here. So it's too bad that we have to hang this man from the the nearest tree, but it's just what we've got to do. And there's this sense of regret and necessity that I find very interesting. That story, that cultural understanding of of executions in Texas is sort of a smokescreen for the fact that the vast majority of both early executions here and lynchings were these mob actions carried out by a crowd of people primarily against Black men, often against Black men who were accused of, you know, sexually assaulting white women. And in this way, Texas is pretty indistinguishable culturally from you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, the states of the deep South that we typically think of as as the the home of Jim Crow and illegal lynchings. But but Texas was very much a part of that picture. And yet Texas has this other story about cowboys on the frontier that allows us to kind of paper over the reality. There was actually a a real historical moment in Texas when we embraced our, our Western heritage as opposed to our Southern heritage because we found it kind of embarrassing. And that has allowed the death penalty to be associated more with the West and more with the frontier than with um, Jim Crow and, and racism. Over time, I start to see that that Texas you know, has its own story, but throughout the rest of the country, Texas becomes the touchstone for punitive criminal justice ideas and policy. So I can't tell you the number of times I would see in a news article out of Washington State or Colorado or Massachusetts, uh, someone say, well, if we were in Texas, we would be executing this person. And I think that's how it should be. You know, I wish we were more like Texas. And there's this constant referring to Texas as the place that's doing it right. And we wish we could all be more like them. And I found that to be one sort of less understood and very interesting element, kind of culturally, the way that our country turned towards retribution in the larger criminal justice system, even when some of these states like Massachusetts didn't have a death penalty.
1: I mean, lynchings, as we know, were these terrible, you know, mob driven public spectacles and in some ways sort of terrible to say but kind of public had a sort of festive aspect to them. And I, I think part of the argument of the book is that to the extent there's a kind of handoff from mob-driven lynchings to state sanctioned executions, it's the state moving in to take control of these potentially unruly and, and unseemly events and putting a kind of you know sheen of legitimacy on them uh, and and modernizing the practice really, making it more efficient. There's a story I tell in the book that I found
0: myself repeating a lot because it's so compelling for me. And that is uh, the story of Dick Garrett. In the early 1900s, he was accused of murder inside the courtroom. As he's being tried, he can hear saws and hammers outside the courtroom in the courthouse square because they're building the scaffold to hang him. The guilty verdict hasn't even come down, but the death sentence is a foregone conclusion. That to me is a really clear example of this sort of slide from illegal mob lynchings to legal executions. The earliest legal executions were all outside in public and very festive, and it was hard to really tell the difference between them and an illegal lynching. And over time, elites in Texas start to get uncomfortable with these mob killings, whether they're legal or illegal, there's something very salacious and it starts to make them look bad to, you know, the business people in the North that they want to work with. They have a decision to take executions out of the public and behind the walls of a prison. And in uh, the 1920s, they start, you know, executing people, not just in Texas, across the country in, in various states, they start carrying out executions behind prison walls and eventually they decide that hanging is sort of barbaric and and too associated with the past so they they adopt the electric chair which is seen as more technological and modern and then slowly race gets sort of pulled out of the picture and you get to that era of the 1960s and 70s Nixon and, you know, Lee Atwater, the political strategist, find a way to talk about crime that doesn't explicitly invoke race, but implicitly evokes it constantly, right? And at the same time, you're seeing executions become quieter and less associated with mob lynchings. We go from the electric chair to, you know, by the 70s. Now, Texas legislators are saying the electric chair is a circus sideshow. We don't want this kind of thing. Uh, But there's this new, more modern form of execution called lethal injection, and we should adopt that. And so executions become more sanitized and clinical, and they go deeper behind. They're not just behind the prison walls, but they're in a dedicated little room that very few people are in, and it's hidden from the public. And so we get to this point where the contemporary death penalty is still the descendant of these illegal lynchings but race and publicity have been so so leached from the the picture that it's really hard to see them unless you're a historian or a a defense lawyer who's very committed to these ideas and and willing to kind of dig in
1: so what is the picture with with race and and the death penalty uh, are the disparities just such that it is crystal clear that we have gone from a kind of mob lynching to state-sanctioned, modernized executions?
0: I would say that it's more complicated than that. I often now find myself thinking to a, a ta Coates article where he says of, of a different situation, yes, it's racism, but it's not simple. Racism is never simple. So one piece of the story we haven't talked much about is that in the 1970s, the Supreme Court struck down death penalty laws, and then a bunch of states including Texas, rewrote their laws. And in 1976, the Supreme Court agreed that those laws were constitutional. And that's when the death penalty system we have today comes really into effect. Some of the arguments that were made at the Supreme Court in the 1960s and 70s were about race. There was this uh, sense, especially among the civil rights lawyers who were fighting the death penalty, that it was very much the descendant of lynchings. The great death penalty defense lawyer, Anthony Amsterdam, once said to the Supreme Court, "The." Figures are perfectly plain. Georgia executes black people, right? And it was a very, that was a bold thing to say at the Supreme Court. But as the system comes back into effect, race is really, as I said before, kind of leached out of the system. But racial disparities continue to pervade the system. You know, black men are. Disproportionately sentenced to death, and then there's an even more pronounced effect—a very dramatic effect—that if the victim is white, the likelihood of a death sentence is much higher. That black people are disproportionately the victims of murder, but white people are disproportionately the victims in in cases where the death penalty is is handed down.
1: So, as I said, the the book has a rise and fall structure, rise and fall of of the death penalty. It's very much your contention and the numbers bear you out that the death penalty is on the wane in this country. I'm wondering for for people who are, you know, working to change or, or take down and start over the justice system, what lessons would you hope that they would draw from your work?
0: So a lot of arguments about reducing the number of people incarcerated in this country have really started to reckon with the pro- what we could call the problem of violence. You know, I think there was a Cultural understanding five to ten years ago, and this is still something I hear from people who are not immersed in, in criminal justice work, that you know, if we only let out everybody who is in prison for selling some drugs or for possessing some drugs, that we could really, really tackle mass incarceration and reduce the number of people in prison. But the numbers don't bear that out. The number of people in prison for drugs is actually pretty small, and it's really largely people who are there for crimes that are considered legally considered violent. And when you hear the details, scare, frankly, a lot of people still, Uh, you know, home invasions, um, rapes, robberies, aggravated assaults. You know, there's plenty of policy debates that have to happen about how we define violence and and how that definition shapes, you know, parole decisions, early release decisions, um, shorter sentences. But we're not gonna really unwind these massive numbers of people in prison without confronting the question of what we do when a crime is violent and what we do when it's frankly kind of terrifying to the victims to the prosecutors and judges who are making decisions at the front end part of why the death penalty disappeared in the united states is because defense lawyers learned how to humanize their clients to convince juries and prosecutors that these people were worth sparing. So I tell in the book, the story of a case in Houston in 2008, a man named Juan Quintero was facing the death penalty for the murder of a police officer. He himself was undocumented. He had been deported. He had been accused of a sexual assault in the past. And yet his lawyer managed to convince a jury to spare his life. And I told that story um, with as much detail as I could, could get, because I felt like in that story, there were lessons for how lawyers and other people who work on criminal justice reform could sort of do deep research on the people facing punishment and humanize them for, you know, the juries and the judges and the prosecutors who are making these decisions. So, of course, death penalty versus life without parole in Houston is a really, for killing a police officer, is a really extreme case, but you could imagine applying some of those lessons to a a much less fraught, case and convincing the jury and the judge this person's worth uh, this person's life is worth redeeming yeah i
1: suppose it's just kind of grim though to think if if the solution is humanizing which we shouldn't have to do in the first place but you know humanizing everybody who's trapped in in this system when you consider what's been happening under the pandemic and the way people have been treated behind bars it's pretty clear you couldn't treat people in that way Uh, In terms of access to medical care, now access to the vaccine, you couldn't treat people like that if you did see them as fully human. So I guess it just feels like there's a long way to go. It does feel like there's a long way to go. And uh, there's the
0: humanizing argument, but then there's also the kind of practical argument that you don't even have to get there with sympathy uh, to just see that this is a sort of failed public policy. And I think there's a parallel in the death penalty context where in some cases, prosecutors and judges have turned away from the death penalty, not because they've come to see these defendants with any sense of humanity or sympathy. They've just decided that it's a waste of money, for example, that it's too expensive to to seek the death penalty against this person, or it's just a waste of resources to get a death sentence when it doesn't really reduce crime. It doesn't necessarily bring peace to the, the family members. Sometimes you have family members of victims who actually don't want the death penalty. So there's this question of like who it's even being done for. So I think there's some interesting parallels in the death penalty world when you talk about the practical arguments for reducing incarceration.
1: And so if the death penalty is disappearing, as you say, is it going to end at some point with a definitive bang? I mean, with another Supreme Court decision or, uh, I mean, sometimes it sounds to me like what you're saying is it's just kind of fading away.
0: It is fading away very slowly. I think that Trump's execution spree paved the way for a bang in the sense of, you know, a congressional bill or a a really sweeping decision by Biden. But even if Congress does something, that won't affect the death penalty in the states. And so I think in states like Texas and Florida and Georgia and Alabama, you're going to still see, you know, year after year executions, but fewer and fewer. And it's going to reach the point where there's just a few a year. And it really just seems irrelevant to everyone. I do also think that you'll continue to have cultural and political debates in really extreme cases that come along every few years. I'm thinking of the Boston Marathon bombing or Dylan Roof shooting up the church in and killing, you know, numerous churchgoers in South Carolina or the Pittsburgh, you know, mass shooting at the temple. In these cases, you do still see a debate about whether this person deserves the death penalty, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that those cases are just so rare. If Trump couldn't bring a real revival of the death penalty, it's hard to imagine what set of cultural and political and legal forces would have to align to cause the kind of backlash and embrace of the
1: death penalty that we saw in the 1970s and 80s. Given that the death penalty, as you've laid out, is waning so much and that you know it affects such a tiny amount of people, as terrible as the stories are, obviously, why is it important that we not take our eye off the death penalty?
0: Because death penalty cases are still the symbolic home of many of our debates about criminal justice more broadly. You see a lot of issues that actually affect the entire criminal justice system play out in death penalty cases. Whether this is a debate about intellectual disability and the right punishment for somebody who, you know, has a very low IQ, or severe mental illness, or, you know, innocence, it's been in death penalty cases that the problematic forensics of arson evidence, you know, fire science or bite marks, as they've been assessed by sort of fraudulent, you know, experts in court, those those problems have really been unearthed in death penalty cases because the stakes are life and death and because the lawyers on both sides sort of fight it out till the end. So I think you're going to, even as the death penalty wanes, you're going to continue to see these individual cases where because death is on the table, it becomes the
1: vehicle for debating something that has relevance to the larger system. A lot of the book is told through sort of profiles of different characters interacting with the death penalty system at times, it almost feels like in terms of people on death row that, you know, in the book, we're sort of privy to the inner lives of somebody on death row. And I, I'm, I, I'm just wondering what kind of contact you had. When I started working on the book, I had already
0: interviewed several men on death row uh, as part of stories that I was writing. So I had a sense of how to interview people on death row, but I wanted a broader sense of what their lives were like. And so I sent letters to a number of men on death row. In early iterations of the research, I had thought that maybe the storytelling kind of spine of the book was going to be like one case, and I could pick a single case and take the reader through the entirety of that case. And I ended up abandoning that approach for various reasons. But as I was trying to do that, I was talking to men on death row, and it was primarily through letters. That is still the primary way that that reporters in Texas can interact with people in prison. In the book, I focus on the story of uh, Edward Capitio, who was sentenced to death in the '90s for the murder of a young man and woman. And uh, I focused on his case because the prosecutor who sent him to death row was one of the main figures in my book. I had reasons why I wanted to highlight her story, and so I wondered what happened to him. How did he fare? And. He, you know, went to death row and was, you know, very angry at the world, but slowly came to a kind of peace. So I just thought he had had all these different experiences. And he was very just sort of great at writing about them in his life and and wrote me these very long letters. He also had a European pen pal who I got in touch with, and she shared some of the the poetry that he had written and sent to her. So was able to kind of build a portrait of this one young man. And I didn't want his story to be simple. I didn't want him to be kind of reduced to a villain or a victim or totally innocent person. I mean, he admits to committing this horrible crime and he's not even maybe as remorseful as as some readers might sort of want him to be. But I wanted him to be complicated and rich and three-dimensional in that way.
1: So it was possible for the two of you to develop, I mean, something like a relationship through this correspondence?
0: Yes, that's right, and and I also was able to visit him in prison, and so we had a long interview in in person.
1: Some of the focus of the book is on you know the death penalty, this action of of the state putting someone to death in this manner. That it's a deeply traumatic event, and the trauma from it just radiates out to touch everybody who's involved with it in, in sort of any kind of fashion. You and your experience is not the focus of the book at all, but you have been working you know, in this material and pulling the threads of this past and up to the present day, you've been doing this for, for years now, I think maybe 10 years or something you said at one point. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what, what about your own experience has substantiated that point for you about the trauma that the death penalty radiates? In
0: November, when, uh, the Trump administration, announced a series of executions. One of them was of a man named Orlando Hall. And I didn't know anything about the case, but as a reporter, I got a press release from his defense lawyers. And there was a quote from one of the defense lawyers and I stopped short because it was a lawyer who I had interviewed extensively for the book. And in the book, I tell the story of that lawyer watching his client be executed back in 1993 when he was just a few years out of law school was Really traumatized by that experience. I had spent all this time conducting interviews and trying to bring to life these really traumatic moments to explain how, as you say, they radiate out to, to all these different participants in the system. And I hadn't thought about myself so much. Uh, you know, there was there was a moment actually when a few years ago, a man who I had reported on pretty extensively and gotten to know very well, his name was Scott Dozier, and he had abandoned his appeals and was seeking to be executed this was in nevada and i got to know scott uh, incredibly well and then scott um, died by suicide and the partner the wife of the lawyer who i just described you know from 1993 she sent me an email saying you know my condolences i know he wasn't your family member but you know this affects everybody who knows these people and so take care of yourself basically and i was really I uh, felt this sort of incredible warmth from that email, and and realized like, oh, I, I am a part of this this system in a way, and the trauma hits me too. Um, and then I kind of packed it back in again, you know, and and went on my sort of you know reporter way, and tried to be aware of how the emotions were affecting me, but was not always particularly good at it. And then. Uh, fast forward to where I started this, this past November, the execution date, you know, is set. And it's another one of the clients of this lawyer who's, who's experienced being traumatized by an execution I've reported on so, so closely. And I suddenly started to feel kind of panicky. My eyes welled up. I started to cry and I didn't know what was going on. I just thought it was kind of a busy day. And my wife didn't even have to ask me very much about what was wrong. And I suddenly was like, well, you know, I got this email and I thought at first that I sounded sort of strange talking about an email I got about some execution that has nothing to do with me. I don't know anything about the case at that moment, but I'm realizing that it's, it's that lawyer. And I have vicariously experienced his trauma from afar. And then that's kind of unlocked in this way that I can't expect, you know, many years into this work, because it just hits me in this very particular way that you can't predict. And uh, I learned a lot from that experience. And I'm sharing it because it was, for me, the moment that I realized how much the trauma of these cases radiates, even to the point that it hits the reporter who's writing about them in a more historical frame. But even I can't escape that
1: I don't know if that's a great note to end on, but <laughs> <laughs> but listen, Maurice, I I want to just uh, I want to thank you for being here, and I want to congratulate you on the book. I think it's just it's a very important story you're telling, not just about the death penalty, but about the evolution of the criminal justice system as a whole. And it, a lot of it is grim, but it's it's also ultimately I I think very very moving. So congratulations, and just thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for
0: having me. Really appreciate it.
1: That was my conversation with Maurice Chaumat. He is a journalist at The Marshall Project and the author of Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. For more information about today's show, click the link in your show notes or visit courtinnovation.org newthinking. Today's show was edited and produced by me. You can let me know what you thought of it on Twitter at didacticmat, and you can follow the center at courtinnovation. Simiha Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.